Welcome to the Work Minus Podcast. We talk about what we need to drop from the way we think about work and what we need to replace it with to be prepared for the future. Go to workminus.com to see a transcript of this episode, more podcasts, articles, and a newsletter that connects you to the best ideas about work. All right, enjoy the show. Well, welcome back to the Work Minus Podcast. Today, we have our first repeat guest on the show. David Marquez is back. He's got a new book called Leadership is Language, The Hidden Power of What You Say and What You Don't. And I love this book. I'm really excited to talk to him. David, hi. Welcome to the show again. Hey, thanks, Neil, for having me back. Yeah, no, it's exciting. I made it through the gate. Yeah. <laughs> now you're, you're really in our club now. It's good. We loved what you had to say before, just about leadership and the, the ideas you got from that. But this book, I feel like, is the a great logical step in the next direction. Honestly, I was reading it. I was working on an article about productivity and about how to lead a more productive team. And I had I was about halfway done, and I started reading your book, and I realized I had to change so many things because there are a yeah. lot of good, good <laughs> Sorry to give you extra work. <laughs> yeah. But just give us a, a little bit of background about why the new book is out. What's the main idea of it? Yeah, so um, since Turn the Ship Around came out, I've had the good fortune to meet with a lot of different companies and see how they work and see what their problems are. And everyone wants to think, oh, we're unique. Oh, look, we're a nuclear power plant. Oh, look, we do bottled water, you know, whatever it is. But when you get down to the human level, I see very common trends. Now, on the submarine, we had what I call decision mode and execution mode. Mm-hmm. And decision mode was we wanted to make a wide aperture, broad perspective, make a decision that was very inclusive. It was embracing variability. Oh, you think differently. Let's hear about it. But then once we made a decision, I wanted focus. I wanted to reduce variability. I want to be precise about executing the plan that we had decided on. And if we needed to, we'd pause and we'd go back to embracing variability. And I thought that uh, this, was, this was a concept that really didn't come up through in Turn the Ship Around, but was, would have been really helpful. So I had that storying around in my head. And then I had this, uh, and then the, other, the other thing that was going on was I felt like I was programmed to respond in certain ways. And even though I was pretty good on the submarine, so for example, I'd be, I'd, I'd be giving a speech and someone would say, oh, can I give you some feedback? And immediately, I'd like shut down. I'm like, really? You know? <laughs> and uh, that was disjointed. I'm like, what? Like, oh, so you couldn't keep up? Is that what you're trying to say? You know, that, <laughs> yeah. was my, that was what I wanted to say. Yeah. But then I'd take a breath and I'm like, oh, tell me about that. And I felt like I was programmed. My programming took me in a non-helpful way. And, yeah. and so here's what I'm doing. I'm blaming the industrial revolution for my programming. It's not me. It's just like, that's how we've been programmed. And so we need to reprogram ourselves. So these two ideas are coming together where we're going to, we're going to, we're going to have to create this rhythm of thinking and doing, and we're going to reprogram our plays. So instead of, so for example, instead of obey the clock, that was the industrial age play. That's why we have words like clockwork and we clock in, we pay people by, this all stems from this sense that we obey the clock. Yeah. And now we want to control the clock. And you see it play out today. So for example, in the 737 Max uh, tragedy, where uh, 346 people died in the two, two crashes, now we see there's some texts from one of the pilots early on, and he's talking about, oh, the pressure to kind of get it done and to meet the regulators. 
well, this is obey the clock. This is this is yeah. this is the sense in the company that we have to get it done, not oh, let's pause and make sure we do it right. Mm-hmm. It's it's not are we going to do it, but how quickly can we get it done? Yeah. And so the idea in the book is to capture what I think are six fundamental plays programming that we had from the industrial revolution that we need to re-script. So that's a longer um, answer than you probably were hoping for. <laughs> that's good. I mean, industrial revolution is one of our favorite punching bags too. I wish it, it probably would like to defend itself here and then, but we don't let it. So, well, okay. Yeah. So I'm glad you said that. And I, I, I'm a huge fan of the industrial revolution. I mean, think about the way it was before. Yeah. But but it, the problem is that the problem wasn't the industrial revolution when it happened. The problem problem is an industrial an organization designed to serve the industrial revolution way of working now. Yeah, true. Yeah, and I talk about uh, Taylor and Taylorism, uh, but I do try and give respect to at the time. I mean, look up look in the early 1900s, the education level was way less than it is now. Yeah. We have records from soldiers enlisting to go into World War One, and high there are high rates of illiteracy, much higher than now. And thankfully, we have a much more educated. But even uneducated people are smart. Sure, like there's a difference. I I, I always remind people: cavemen could understand quantum mechanics. Hmm. They had all the brain capacity to understand quantum mechanics, and we confuse uneducated with, with dumb. Yeah, and, and it's a bad mistake. Yeah, a really bad mistake. Yeah, and that's a whole nother podcast we'll get into one day. That'll be your third one. That's your next book. Write it on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cateman can do quantum mechanics. Yeah, he's making a note right now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I want to get back into this this idea of. Doing versus thinking. In the book, you call it like red and blue work, these these two different hats. And I think the thing I got out of the book was that for the longest time in the Industrial Revolution, these were these not just two different things one person did. These were two different jobs. Like you had somebody doing the doing and you had somebody doing the thinking. Yes. And, and where we're at now is that you need to have one person or one team that does that consistently back and forth, right? Exactly. And And, and so the Industrial Revolution... One group, so we called them the followers, and we called them the blue-collar workers. We called them the the hourly workers Mm -hmm. or the union workers. Those were the doers. And the other group was the decider. I like to say deciders and doers. Then I get the alliteration. (laughs) And and now what we need and what organizations are trying to do is, well, we need the doers to also be deciders. I think this is exactly what we want because in the other way – all leadership is coercive. Mm-hmm. I had to get someone else. If you were a leader, like you needed to get them, the doer, to do what you decided for them them to do. And right. if you were a doer, you had to do what someone else decided you needed to do. And so that's coercion. And so all leadership. Now we, we you know we don't call it coercion. That's ugly. So we say, well, we motivate or we inspire or blah blah blah. But it's basically getting someone else to do something. And I don't think this works, especially when it comes to thinking work. Mm-hmm. So what we need is to get the, let the doers also be the deciders and create structures which allow that to happen. So that's exactly right. So now we have a rhythm where if I, if I look at my work life, I have I flip back and forth between 
doing and deciding and doing is focused, proving like uh, tip might be individual work. That's why uh, open workspace, open workspaces are great for collaboration, but they've neglected the doing part. Like I need to actually yeah. do the work. And, and sometimes we get confused. The, the, the thinking part only lives to serve the doing part. Hmm. Like n- no one ever built an airplane just making PowerPoint slides. You actually build an airplane by building an airplane. Right. So sometimes we get confused and we put the, we, we, we think that the, 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 the meeting is the master, but the meeting serves the actual work. Yeah. And that's a really great point. I think where I struggle with and where a lot of other people do, I hope too, is just in the sense of that, that transition between the two. You're talking about jumping back and forth. When is it time to collaborate? When is it time to do my solo work? When is it time to go back to group work? When is it time to think? And going back and forth. And you have some helpful tips in the book about that. Why don't you go into those? Yeah, so, and I've seen organizations go both ways. So for example, I have these two made-up executives in the book, Fred and and Sue. Fred is stuck in red, Sue is stuck in blue. And so the red work is the focus, is the, is the doing work. So, for, so Fred's running around all day long getting people to do stuff. He never has time to think. And he's the guy who needs to control the clock, say, hold on a second, guys, let's, Let's let's get on. Let's all get together. Take a minute. Decide if if we really want to launch this product. Mm-hmm. And then Sue is stuck in blue. Her problem is she's always in in um, socialization mode or analysis paralysis, and it just feels too heavy to make a commitment and do something. And it's just two flip sides of the same thing. So. To make it easy, if you if you're stuck in sort of it seems like we're just talking about it all the time, and, and you're using words like analysis paralysis, then you probably need to move to red. The reason and move to the doing, and and the reason it feels heavy is because we feel like we're making an initiative for a long time, and so you lighten that by just saying, hey, let's try it for three months, and you put an expiration date on the decision, and then. It, it, it's easier to commit to a three-month thing like, oh, for the rest of your life. Mm. And then the, the other thing is that sort of ex, experimental commitment with an expiration date triggers a learning perspective. So, okay, let's see what we learn from this as well as, well, let's we're going to produce something for three months, but then we're going to see what we learn and what we can improve. And then three months from now, we're going to raise our heads again. We're going to look around. How do we like it? How are we doing? Blah, blah, blah. Let's make a tweak then dive back into the work. But I, but I think you want to be super focused when you're in the work and you want to be super broadly perspective when you're, when you're, when you're out of the work. And what I see is if you don't know, you don't have this language where it's just sort of focused and then we're sort of broadly perspective and neither one is good. Yeah. And one of the, one of the things, one of my phrases is we bring a reduced variability playbook to an embrace variability game because we're bringing and reduce variability in industrial age language when we want to get people to think. For example, if you say, hey, we're in a meeting, let's build consensus. What is that? That's reducing variability because I'm squeezing out the outliers. Yeah. This is not what you want. Hey, everyone. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, the best way you can support us is to leave a review in your favorite podcast app. Or better yet, start a conversation with a friend about how you think we can make work better. Thanks. Right. And let's go into this because this was a new thought I'd never thought of when you talked about 
there's a new idea you need to think through, you need to get people's opinion on. The typical thing is you throw the idea out there, let's talk about it, and then we'll take a vote afterwards or we'll, we'll decide what we're going to do afterwards. But you're saying that, that that actually does not help at all. Well, uh, that, that, that's designed, that's the industrial age way of doing it. Why? Because it's reducing variability. Because as soon as you say, hey, let's talk about it, even, the worst thing you can do is say, well, I think we should launch the product. What do you guys think? Mm-hmm. Because what you're doing is you're just making it very hard for people who think differently than that to speak up. You're just making it a little bit harder. Uh, not quite as bad, but also bad is when we say, hey, let's talk about it. Because people will have, they have a very good sense of where the group is going. And it seems like, oh, the group seems to think that we should launch the product. I don't, I think it's a pro, I think there's a problem, a hidden problem, and we really need to rethink it. But no one else seems to think it. So I'm just going to stay quiet. And what you want to do, uh, and, and that's what I mean when we're bringing a reduced variability playbook to an embrace variability game. So what you want to do is say, hey, before we contaminate anyone with groupthink, let's just vote. And, you, and, and it's not a binary vote because binary votes, you don't learn anything. Because mm-hmm. like, oh, sh- should we do it? Yes, thumbs up. Is that a 51% thumbs up or a 99% thumbs up? So right. you say, how strongly do we feel about launching the product? One to five or fist to five. And then people can put their hands up or we use cards sometimes. We have probability cards. Mm-hmm. The uh, purpose of the vote is to uh, let the people who feel very strongly one way or the other identify themselves. And then we give them voice and say, okay, we embrace the outliers because we're now embracing variability. Oh, I see you see different than everyone else. And by the way, if it's like 80% of people are voting one way and 20% of the other, you always invite the minority first. Hmm. You always invite because it's harder to speak as a minority after the majority has spoken. Right. The purpose, the leadership at a meeting is not getting people to get on board with your decision. Leadership in a meeting is running the meeting in a way so that at the end of it, each person walks out of there feeling, yes, my, what I was thinking, I felt was heard in the meeting and it was safe. I, I thought differently. All innovative ideas always start sounding weird. (laughs) All new. Hey, I think we can build these machines that fly what no it's crazy hey the world's round no that's crazy hey the water in flint michigan is poison no that's crazy right they always start as an outline or as a fringe idea mm-hmm. and the first time someone says it it always sounds wrong so now it may actually be wrong but you don't know that right and i think this is where a lot of us kid ourselves because i mean it's one thing to read all this and say you know no i have a progressive company we're very open-minded we, we do all these things but I mean, you've seen, you know, tech companies and, and startups that that exhibit these same destructive behaviors when it comes to saying, okay, let's just build consensus, let's all agree on this, and the leader in the room is often the one that drives everything. So even though it has this facade of being new and modern, it's still kind of the same old thing, right? Yeah, it, exactly. So I think, be, and the reason is because they're they've just adopted the same language patterns that they've seen. Mm-hmm. And, and until someone says, well, no, we actually need a different language pattern. So on and on and on. Uh, is it safe? Yes. That's not the question. How safe is it? How likely will this be? So you want to ask in a probabilistic way. Even something as, easy, as simple as you come up to me and say, hey, I really think we should launch the product. Oh, how about this? I think we should delay product launch. 
Hmm. And I'm like, no, that's wrong. Like, that's what happens in my head. And I might do something really annoying, like, well, have you thought about, you know, company reputation? Oh, no, I totally forgot. Like, yeah, of course, that, that's annoying. So, so the <laughs> next thing we do is, well, why would you want to do that? Even that's provocative. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's a tactical why. And it sends a signal, I think you're wrong. Like, nah, nah, never mind, forget about it. And then we launch it, and it turns out this is a disaster. It's like, well, I tried to tell you, but you didn't listen. No, you didn't tell me. It was not my fault. Like, no, you as leaders are not asking questions that makes it easy for your team to send you the signal that they're trying to send. Yeah. So uh, I, I think one of the things I see in tech companies is, first of all, there's a transition point because they, they always start sort of very founder centric. Right. And the founder is the decision maker. And at some point, the founder needs to build a decision making factory and get out of making decisions. Otherwise, you can't scale mm-hmm. beyond a certain level. And the second thing, and the, and the reason I like uh, the red-blue is because you do need structure. I, I, I've been in some of these companies where they say, oh, yeah, everyone just do whatever they want. You know, I, I'm not going to set any boundaries. And what, what happens is when without boundaries, people are become more risk-adverse. Hmm. And there's more confusion. There's more friction. And, and there's a there's a famous study where they took uh, this was an urban school that had a fence around the playground, and the kids would play right up next to the fence. Then they removed the fence because some psychologist said fences are bad. And what happened? The kids just clustered in the middle of the playground because they weren't sure where the boundary between safe and unsafe was. Yeah. And so boundaries actually allow people to do more risk-embracing behavior, not the opposite. Hmm. Interesting. Well, the book is called All About Language, right? What are some other language tips that leaders especially are are not aware of or are using wrong that they can bring in? Some more of these plays that they can incorporate into their daily life. So your team is running behind and your instinct is say, come on, let's get going. Uh, hey, we're burning daylight. You have all these sort of phrases to which creates speed bumps to someone saying time out. Hmm. And, and so you have a person on your team who sees a problem and it's sort of, uh, you know, it's wearing at them and, and they got to make a decision. Do they speak up and say time out or not? But because we've been saying these things, hey, this is really important. Hey, we really got to make this deadline. And you're saying these things thinking you're doing the right thing, but you're just creating speed bumps. So what you want to, so when it becomes really important, you say, Hey, we have time to do this right. Hey, if anyone sees something, raise your hand. Or here's a yellow card. Around a construction site, you know, hold up a yellow card. So we we're going to pour the concrete. We're about to pour the concrete. We need to know that that, that it's laid out right. And if you think there's a problem, let's do it before the concrete's <laughs> <laughs> sitting in the foundation. So. Um, we call that preempting the pause. Yeah. In other words, you're doing things which make it a little bit harder for someone to say uh, time out. Another thing that, that, that people do sometimes deliberately is, is what we call we increase the power gradient. So the power gradient is how much more important does my boss feel for me? Hmm. And I've seen corporations where w- what are signs of power, office size, carpet thickness, uh, the number of uh, 
and the attractiveness of your assistants that sit out front of, you know, the guardians that sit out front of your office. And so that creates a sense of separation, private parking garage, private dining room. And then the, and then these same executives say, Oh, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know that this was happening. Yeah. No kidding. Because you isolated yourself. You're like that, that Sith Lord in, um, the, Star Wars. In Star Wars movie, right? You're like by yourself. The nearest person is 30 feet away from you and they're just guards with lightsabers. But uh, so, and then you complain that you don't know what's going on. Yeah, but you designed the architecture deliberately to isolate yourself. So mm. that's called the power gradient. Information flows inversely proportional to the power gradient. So the steeper the power gradient, the more important you feel about yourself. Mm-hmm the less information you're going to get from your team, especially the most important information, which is information which is different than how you see the world. Because they're not going to want to tell you that. And then don't whine later when other stuff happened. This is what we see, like winter corn at Volkswagen. I didn't know that these guys were cheating on the emission scandal. Yeah, Volkswagen is a highly top-down command and control, do-what-you're-told culture that they deliberately designed it. I'm going to jump back to a, a concept you talked about before, which is decision-making factories. So you got a leader who's trying to build a team to go out, but all the decisions keep coming back to them. What are some steps they can do to start that? You got to lean back, but very, very, very slowly. Don't say, oh, look, no, this is your decision. If yesterday it was, your, it was the leader's decision, tomorrow you can't say, it's, no, it's your decision. The first step is simply description. Description is psychologically safe. All you do is say, tell me more. How do you see it? What do you see? Description. Like, what was the customer's face? Describe the face when you said this is what it was going to cost. Tell me what you see. And then what do you think? Now you're going into analysis and interpretation. And then you say, well, what would you recommend? Or if I weren't here, what would you do? I use, uh, uh, here's a couple tricks. Uh, one is I call it fast forward. So you advance yourself in time mentally. You say, hey, six months from now, let's say, let's say it's six months from now. We're looking back to today. What do we wish we'd done? Mm-hmm. That generally helps put you into a more longer term perspective, which generally is going to be better for you. Most, most decisions that when they become suboptimized are because they're too near term. I'm just trying to get this quarter. I'm trying to hit quarterly numbers and that kind of thing. So if you have a short-term perspective, it's always easier for you to make a decision. Once you have a longer-term perspective, you say, well, what? I can't sell my company in 10 years if I'm the sole person. So I have a bunch of baby boomers now. They're in their 60s and 70s, and they've done everything right. They built a company. They got 25 people, 50 people, 100 people. They're doing well, but they're, they've been the key, key decision-makers. And they go to a private equity guy and they say, hey, what's my company worth? And the private equity guy says, zero. What? Hmm. Yeah, because you're the company. All decisions are made by you. If I pull you out of it, it's going to fall apart. So you got to build something. you got to build a decision-making factory. I, I got that exact problem right Well, sort of. But right now, I'm trying to – like my company is kind of based on my story and, my, and me as a person. And I got I to gotta get out of it. Mm-hmm. I got, you know, we're trying to build a, a movement, a more like agile or lean or something, an intent-based leadership thing, which is separate from me. 
No, that, that's that's great. We've we've been talking internally about you know the difference between marketing a product, which in some cases is like your brand, your personality, your book, or whatever that's out there, versus marketing an idea, a concept that you can latch onto, and a lot of other people can get in there too. So this this is this is great stuff, uh, David. I always wish we could have more time to talk. Um, yeah. We'll have to wait till you write your next book, though, as we talked before. I'll have to write another book. It's going to be about cavemen can do quantum mechanics. Yeah. Co- I'll, I'll be the co-writer if you want. I'll be there. All right. Well, cool. So the book is with me right here. Leadership is Language. Um, when is it going to be released? February 4th. Very nice. February 4th of 2020. Make sure you get it. If you didn't read the first book, Turn the Ship Around, it's great. It has a lot of lessons from your your time as a submarine captain, and and you bring a, a lot of great stories, a lot of good anecdotes in this book, too. So a lot of cool stuff. So make sure everyone go check it out. So thanks a lot, David. All right. Cheers, Neil. And to, uh, hi to all your listeners. Thanks, everyone. Hey, if you're the kind of person who listens to the very end, you must be a fan. Now, we are building a team of people who really love what we're talking about and want to go deeper. If you want to interact with guests, drive the content of Work Minus, and give feedback on our work before it goes public, send an email to neil at workminus.com. It's N-E-I-L at workminus.com, and I'll get you connected.